welcome 1001 fans to another Family Ties special presentation. Our special guest is Ancestry's Juliana Zooks. The title of today's episode is Family Ties, the Hummel Family, from Famine to Feast. Hi, Juliana. It's great to have you with us today. Hi, John. How are you? Very good. Thank you. I'm hoping you can give us a little bit of your background since this is the first of our series with you. And uh, give us a little bit about your background and what you do for Ancestry, how you help people find their families, and then we'll get into the subject of today's episode. Okay. Uh, well, I've been working with Ancestry for 21 years now. I work remotely from my home, and I'm on the PR research team, which means we basically work for internal people. We work for the marketing team, our PR team, when we have, I have opportunities to partner with people like yourself with your podcast and help you out with your research. We're kind of like, um, I guess we would call us family history evangelists. We like to, you know, spread the stories that we discover through our research around so that people can just start, get interested and maybe start thinking about researching their own families. You know how rewarding it is as a genealogist. <laughs> it's It's got to be one of the most exciting uh, careers in the world. I love what I do. It's a new new job every day. Would you be kind enough to share us the story of the Hummels? And as I understand, that's your family. So this is a subject yeah. you know extremely well. The Huggins family was someone, when when we rarely get those opportunities to do our own family history, and I work a lot with my mom. She's been doing this since the 70s. And that's when she got me interested, actually. <laughs> but the Huggins family was, um, they're an immigrant family. And I started out, I, I for some reason, I was, I've always been attracted to immigration records and passenger list it, because it's this, such a momentous time in a family's life when they make this decision to leave everything behind in the old country and come to America. And so even though the records from this time period typically aren't really rich in detail, you're going to get a name, you'll get the dates of arrival and when they left, what ship they were on, um, you'll get the country they were from. Usually you're not going to get a, a date from this time period or um, an exact township or anything. Um, occupation, their age. So there's things that you can use to identify them, but it's it's tricky to find these records, especially if you're working with Irish people who have typically common names. So what I try to do first is when I'm trying to look for a record or try to even solve any research problem is I put together a timeline. I want to know where these people were when. Um, I, I was fortunate with this family that they had some children that were born in Ireland and some that were born in the U.S. And using that information and then information from William's death record that said how long he had been in the U.S., I was able to narrow the time frame of when they came. And so I was able to do more effective searches for them. So what happened was I found William and Marianne Huggins. Um, these are my third great-grandparents. And they arrived on Ashburton on July 29, 1844. So I was, like, very excited. Everything matched up with what I knew about the family except one thing. Where were the children that were born in Ireland? Yeah. And so, you know, we think of this in our modern construct, but what we need to remember is that um, chain migration was a thing back then. A lot of times the families couldn't afford to bring everyone over at once. So the, one or both of the parents would go over, get established, raise some money to send for the rest of the family. So presumably these kids were left with family, neighbors, friends in Ireland. And that's an important concept, too. We want to keep in mind that we want to research fully, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, 
get to know the people that their their friends, associates, and neighbors. Um, Elizabeth Schoen Mills has coined the term their fan club. <laughs> so getting to know their fan club is really helpful in identifying people. Fan, fan meaning friends, associates, and neighbors, right? Exactly. That's the acronym. So um, I, I went looking for the children, and sure enough, I found them on the ship Liverpool coming over in 1849. So they were age 7, 9, and 11. And when you go through, the, knowing the family structure, you know, a lot of people just research that direct line, but having the names of all three of those kids, knowing their ages, that they had been born in Ireland, this, you know, all fit that I had the right family. Um, but the, what really, when you start to, when it's, so this is what our team does, is we look for history. We want to look for connections to history, because that's where the stories come in. Um, and when we put together the timeline of the parents coming in 1844, the kids in 1849, well, in 1846 is when the Great Famine hits. So as a mom, when I think about this, I get chills every time. Thinking about Marianne and wondering how her kids are doing in Ireland and being helpless because they're unable to bring them over and get them out of this situation. So, and then thinking of these kids crossing the ocean, um, it's Robert, Judith, and Catherine. Robert's listed as a laborer at age 11. Oh. And so, you know, it's kind of jarring to think of that in these, you know, when we think of it in today's terms. But it really did, this record really moves me that, you know, and my ancestor, if we turn their, um, you know, we turn these dates into ages, we think about it, their parents left five years ago. So Catherine, who was my great-great-grandmother, was two years old when her parents left for America. Wow. She was going to America to meet her parents that she had no recollection of. And Judith was only four when they left, so she would have probably not have very many memories of them either. So this story, it's one that inspires me. And when I think about, you know, when you're in your, you know, 21st century whiny mode and I'm having a really bad day and that I think about this family and I go, okay, <laughs> time to toughen up. You got it pretty darn good when you compare your life to what these people went through. So, so, they, um, so the parents literally went over first. And why mm -hmm. was there so much time from the time? First of all, why would parents leave a two-year-old, a four-year-old, an eleven-year-old? Number one, and yeah, you would be only six at that time. And and number two, who was taking care of them? And number three, how long did they stay? Where did they go to in the U.S.? And how long did they stay before they could bring the kids across? Okay, so they came to the U.S. and as far uh, and they went right to Brooklyn and they stayed there. They lived there their entire lives. In fact, these families lived in Brooklyn. My mother was born in Brooklyn, <laughs> mm -hmm. so uh, they came. They were a lot of Irish. They came. They liked it in Brooklyn and they stayed. But um, the reasons that they would have left would have been obviously bad. You know, poor opportunities in Ireland. They were Catholic, so there was a lot of prejudice against Catholic. They would have been staying probably with family. We know there was a Matthew Huggins that was in the area, and he was a sponsor for Catherine on her baptism. So, um, and I know that they're related. Um, I've actually been able to go back and uh, the Irish Catholic records that we have on Ancestry and take this family back a few generations. And that's one of the other things that I noticed on this passenger list, too, is I started seeing, I just started browsing the list because I'm kind of like a squirrel. I like to go off and explore all these different things. And that's where you find the stories. But I found a Biddy Murtaugh that's listed on there. 
And I know that um, William Huggins' mother was a Murtaugh. Now this biddy was also, was only 15 years old. So still little more than a child. But as I'm looking through this passenger list, there are no Huggins, there are no other Murtaugh's, but there are familiar names. I'm seeing names of people who were sponsors for them for kids that were born later in Kirkland because I had their baptism records. Yeah. So these were people from the same area and I can compare them to names because I know where they're from in County Westmeath. So I can identify them in Griffith's valuation. And so here we're bringing together multiple records and the clues that we find in these multiple records. And we're starting to see that I can see now that this manifest is actually contains a number of people that are from the same area of County Westmeath. They were all coming together. So they were probably looking out for each other and looking out for these children, which makes me feel a little better. <laughs> Absolutely, they had support. Right. right. And this wasn't a safe. Just, this wasn't a safe boat trip, was it? No, it wasn't. What was really interesting about it too, and this is another thing about looking at the entire record, looking at it in context. Um, the Liverpool arrived in, 19, 18, in 1849 in March, March 9th. So a ship crossing typically took one to two months at that time. So when you think about that, that means they were crossing the North Atlantic in February and maybe even part of January. So it was a dangerous crossing. It was very cold. And when you think about it, um, these were people that had just ridden out the famine. They were not in great health. And it took a huge toll. Of, I went through and counted because uh, one of the sponsors was a John Walsh and his brother Edward. It was, it looks like probably a brother. They were like two years apart, but he's listed right above him. And he, there's a death date listed. He had died in February. And so I started looking and seeing all these death dates on this manifest. So 3,700 out of the 416 passengers died on this crossing. So that's nearly 9%. Mm. And that's actually, the, that, that was very common. And actually that's one of the lower numbers. Some of the people that were, the crossings that came into Canada, um, they weren't as stringent with how many people that could pack in the ships, so the conditions were even worse. There were a lot of people that died. They used to call these the coffin ships. So, and it's when I look at some of the the other stories on this manifest, there was a family, the Tierneys, and there was four of them. There was mom, dad, Francis, who was like eight, and then there was an infant baby that was with them. Mom, dad, and the baby died within days of reaching New York. So oh. all that was left was this eight-year-old little Francis. And oh I've always what happened to Francis. When I used your Ancestry product, uh, Family Tree, I found it to be one of the most exciting things I've ever done. I was researching my Hagedorn family history, and once you get the correct name in there, it just lights up, and it just it gives you hints, and then it sends you forward. It's amazing how much you can... Every time you get something new and you plug it in, boom, there's a whole new world uh, to explore and to add and to extend that tree with. I found that to be a very exciting and well-made product with a, a ton of capabilities with regard to how much information they have available. Everybody else's family trees, all the, of course, all of the documentation, all of the censuses, everything. Just amazing how many things it comes from. And now I've got a collection of pictures and I can see, you know, what DNA traits have been passed down through the family or not, what, what DNA, what characteristics, that type of thing. And it's really exciting. 
Yeah, it is. It's a fantastic time to be doing family history research. When we first started, my mom, actually, my mom was pretty hardcore. She's pretty well known in the genealogy community. Um, she's written a lot of books and everything. But in the 70s, when she first started, she actually had a microfilm reader in our basement. <laughs> and she would go to the local family history center and she would rent microfilms of the censuses of Brooklyn and we'd have to she'd have to sit and troll through, you know, reel after reel of microfilm to find these people. And so she hired, she had four daughters, and I was probably about eleven I was about eleven years old at the time when she started doing this, and she would write down a list of surnames, all the surnames she was looking for. And whenever we ran across that surname, we had to fill out a little index card with all the information and we had to cite our sources. But she'd give us a quarter card for yeah. finding family. So she kind of indoctrinated me into this field at an early age. But one of the really cool things about that, because you talked about the, the family trees and how easy it is. Like if she'd only waited 30 years, we could find all those census records within an hour, right? <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, but the thing now, though, the thing that I miss, and, and I, you know, like I said, I always kind of have that squirrel mentality. I'm kind of like, ooh, there's something shiny over there. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see what that's about. <laughs> and that's how you find the stories and browsing through the records getting to know your ancestors' community and, like, reading. Because when you found a record and it was your people, there was, I mean, you savored every little detail on that record and you were looking paid before and after, you know, were there other family members living nearby them in the census. And so you really got more out of it. So one of the things I, when I teach classes, sometimes one of the things I try to remind people is it's so easy that we click and we attach these records and click and attach these records. And we're not pulling those details that are clues to our next search, mm -hmm. you know, and finding more stories and more answers. So what I like to do is I'll open up the, the record in a window and I'll just take out, I'll start writing all the notes of all the details I see in that record. And then when you go into an ancestry tree, there's a profile page that has a little mini timeline. And I'll take a lot of those details and edit that event on the timeline, like the 1870 census, it'll say the residents this year. I'll go in there and edit it and add those details to that timeline. I think I did this when I was working on your tree, mm -hmm. uh, adding in some details so that now when I'm looking at this, there, you know, I'm really seeing clues. You know, maybe the in-laws were living with them in one year. Uh, yeah. Where did I find pieces of information? And these are all parts of the story. You really start, when you extract them all and put them in that timeline, you really see their stories unfolding. And I know that you being a professional, you kind of know how the names line up. You, you'll know that the first male in the family takes on the middle name of? And, mm -hmm. yeah, Sometimes. Usually takes on the middle name of what? His um, his grandfather or his grandmother? Yeah, a lot of times. It depends on where they were from. Um, the Germans are really well known for this. Um, but they t usually uh, the pattern is like the first son is the father are the father's father, and then first daughter would be the mother, mother's mother, and you go on. And the, the hazard with that, though, is you also get, when you have families that are naming all their children the same pattern of names, and they're all having kids around the same time, you have these families that look really similar on paper, right? But they may be two distinct families. This may be the cousins yeah. over here. So it's really important to, you know, make sure that you... If you have, um, and I've been, I've been searching for Kelly's in Manhattan, 
at what I do is sometimes I'll build a separate tree to kind of and research both of those families because you can build as many trees as you want on Ancestry. Through a brick, so you I'll hit build, a Kelly in Manhattan, right? Right. Oh my gosh, the city directories like a page and a half of just James Kelly, <laughs> and I'm looking for three generations of James Kelly or Tom in Manhattan. Moore. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so, but to do that, I'll to sort them out because, for example, with one of my James Kellys. He was born in eight, around 1815 in Ireland. Well, there's another one. Lives in the same ward, born around 1815 in Ireland. They both married a woman named Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> so looking at them on paper, they look very similar. But I've started a tree. One of them was James the baker, and mine was James the artificial flower maker. <laughs> and so I've started an actual separate tree for James the baker, so now when I'm running across them and I'm not sure which family I'm looking at, I can compare them, to, you know, the record to the two trees and figure out, you know, oh, he was living at this address. This is James the Baker. So sometimes you got to do that. <laughs> you go to whatever methods you can. Do you have any interesting stories from your Huggins family? Any of any of your relatives? There was, oh, what was the name? There was a um, the cousin that we talked to that gave us the photograph told us, it's one of the first families of theater, and if it escapes me right now, but one of the women in that family supposedly would, it was friends with our family would come and visit every so often. It was old, you know, silent films even going back that far. But we did have, like you were mentioning with the Becker surname, mm -hmm. we've got a mystery on one of our lines that is very similar. There are two generations of Edwin Bruff Dyer, B-R-O-U-G-H. And we have not been able to figure out where that name comes from. Brooke, I have a feeling B-R-O-U-G-H. And there are some gruffs that are associated with theater in New York because I've been looking into that because we had a lot of musicians in that family and things like that. Okay. So, uh, but trying to figure out, and I have a feeling that our brick wall is Eliza Jane Nelson. And I have a feeling maybe that might have been her mother's maiden name. And that, that that was the family's way of honoring. A lot of times when you see those unusual middle names, mm -hmm. that's what it turns out to be. Right. Mom's middle name brought in. Do you have any recent projects or searches that you've done that come to mind that would make great stories for our listeners? Um, actually, there was one that we just did. Um, it was a project we worked on for in, in December of last year. And it was we worked with a filmmaker uh, named Sasha Jenkins. And he's produced a number of other bio documentaries, but we had this concept where we were we researched the descendants of people who were affiliated with the Underground Railroad in New York City and in Brooklyn. And we gathered these people together, the descendants. We did a lot of descendancy research to find people who were had these connections to each other and to the this the whole abolitionist underground railroad movement in New York. And it's, it's really a fascinating time. I bought like five books and learned so much about that period of history. Um, that's one of the things I'm, I firmly believe in. I think when you dig into a particular place and you start reading the history, you're going to have better luck with your research and better, better stories. But so anyways, we gathered all these people not knowing why. We only told them, you're going on a family history adventure. <laughs> and so, and this was a team project, all of us on our team and um, so we brought in ancestry progenealogists and we worked really hard. We identified, I think it was like 50 some descendants. And then we were had to go find people that were willing to do this adventure, not knowing where they're going. And 
as you can imagine, a lot of people were a little skeptical, like, I don't know what this is about, but we had some people who came together and said, you know what, this sounds exciting, I want to do this. Mm -hmm. And so we gathered them all, and they took a tour of the waterfront in Brooklyn, and learned about the abolitionist movement in Brooklyn, and some of the abolitionists that were involved, um, and then ended up at Plymouth Church, which was at that time known as the Grand Central Station huh. of the Underground Railroad in the area. And there was um, Henry Ward Beecher, a prominent abolitionist, yeah. was the minister at the church at that time. And I, for me, it was super, this was my, one of my favorite projects I've ever been involved in, because um, Edwin Brodeyer, his two half-sisters were members of Plymouth Church, and one of them was married there. Oh, wow. And so I was able to go, because I was there for the shoot, to kind of like fact check. And I was able to be in this place where my ancestors were, and it had this connection, such a great connection to history. Oh, my God. So, so we bring these people together, and after their tour, we sit them down in the church. And each of them had received a letter telling their part in the story. And there were tears, and there were... Um, it's a half-hour film that premiered at Sundowns, and we've won several, it's won several awards already. But wow. if you ever, if you or your listeners would like to check it out, just go to Ancestry.com slash Railroad Ties. It's like all one word, Railroad Ties. Okay. And you can watch the video there. It's it's really moving. And they none of them had any idea except one. One of the gentlemen was tied to a very prominent abolitionist. And he didn't know why he was coming. But when we stopped at his ancestor's house, he was like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> Now we're good. <laughs> yeah. But the other, the other individuals didn't know. Um, two of them knew they were related, or three of them knew they were related. They were, you know, rather, relatively close cousins. Um, but there was a, a third cousin that was descended from the same family, and he didn't know. And there was another, another gentleman. I'm not going to spoil it because he was in for a real surprise. <laughs> so it was just a fantastic experience, and watching these people See, seeing the impact that family history and getting that connection to history on their faces and in their words as they are being interviewed about this, mm -hmm. just one of the most moving experiences. And we, they even took us, you'll see, um, they took us on a tour of the basement of Plymouth Church, and that was where they would bring people on the Underground Railroad and hide them. And it's a dirt floor it would have been pitch black because they would have been coming in at night usually. But it really was fascinating and learning about these networks that um, there were actually a couple men. There was a man in New York City named Sidney Howard Gay who actually kept records of the fugitives. And then William Still in Philadelphia also kept records. And the way the net network worked a lot of times is William Still was feeding they were coming into Philadelphia through his office, and then he would feed them in through Sidney Howard Gay's office, and then they would send them upstate. Usually, like after 1850, the fugitive slave law went into effect, and it was no longer safe really anywhere in the U.S., so a lot of them were going into um, to Canada. Right. In fact, Harriet Tubman passed through some of these offices. She was a part of all of this. So just the connections of history and then connecting these real people with these stories that and there were stories of strength, and one of the things that one of the gentlemen, the gentleman that was descended from the abolitionists, 
said that really struck me is that, you know, we, we see these stories and you see these people and what they did. And you just got to think, we're just not doing enough to help each other. And just with such a moving quote, it just the, it was a great experience. I hope you'll get to take a, few, a half hour, leave your time and check it out because it really is a great film. Thank you. I certainly will. That sounds very interesting. There are television shows out there, aren't there, that, that um, bring uh, lost relatives together? Have you been involved in any of those? Yeah, we actually do research for a show called, it's on a TLC called Long Lost Family. And a lot of that is adoptees um, and biological families reuniting. Bring tissue. <laughs> you will need cleanness for sure. <laughs> Every episode we have um, in the office, we before the shows are sometimes after we'll do the screenings where we call it lunch and cry. Everybody brings their lunch together. <laughs> Everybody cries together. <laughs> Uh, but we've done, um, Ancestry's done research, we do, uh, our progenealogists do research for who do you think you are. Um, there are other, there are other productions that we're working on, um, that are just, we're trying to get off the ground. Um, but we do, um, a lot of times we'll have people from the research team, our PR research team, who you're going to have a few other, but my coworkers aren't from the team on air, but sometimes they'll go on talk shows or newscasts and we'll do these mini reveals to, the anchors or the hosts of the shows and teach them a little something. So part of what we did, we did a consult with you to, you know, help you through some of your family history research, uh, brick walls. Mm-hmm. Yes. But that's kind of the outreach we do. And um, so you'll see us on that type of thing as well. And again, we, we try to be these like ambassadors in family history. And, but cause a lot of people still think of it as the hobby of that old aunt, spinster aunt, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, hangs out in cemeteries and old libraries. But I think it's a great it's, hobby for teenagers uh, because they learn so much about history and they also learn about their family. It, it is a great thing. And that's that's how I got inspired by love of history was my mom starting me out. And a lot of the genealogists that do this professionally that I know began at a very, very young age. And it, it just, you know, you go way back on all these things and once you start get once you get bitten by that bug, it stays with you. <laughs> you know that. <laughs> I do know that. And as a teenager or a young adult, it also can create. It can really strengthen some relationships with uh, living ancestors, uh, with with living family, as in a grandfather, a great grandfather, a great grandmother before they pass, and they love to be able to share their stories. And they're so they're really not asked to that often. To do so. Right. so and, it's kind of neat um, to be able to do that and to strengthen that relationship. Yeah, my mom's gone into schools and taught. She actually went into my nephew's school and they were doing a project on family history. And she went back afterwards when they were revealing the, what they had learned. And some of the kids, that was the message that they came back to her with was, thank you so much. One of the, I think one of them um, came back to her and said, you know, I talked to my grandfather, and I felt like I got to know him, and shortly right after that, he died. Yeah. And so that connection was made, though, um, before. So that, it, that it's really an important thing. And there actually have been studies that show, it was Emory University, University did a study a few years back that showed that children who know something about their ancestry and their ancestors' stories are better equipped to cope with challenges because they have that strength and they, the, those those roots ground them. Yes. And that's 
So, um, so there is a real benefit to getting young people interested. And we're seeing with the DNA um, and all this, you know, people wanting to know, get a better sense of who they are. You see these kids. My mom's had all her grandkids tested. And when they get got their results, just the excitement. And then, then all of a sudden now it's like, okay, I need to know more. We've already got one of my nieces that's already into genealogy. So we've, we're passing that torch on. That's great. <laughs> It really is very moving to see these stories unfold, and you know, and the a lot of times you see the similarities. There was one case that was on the show where um, they were both nurses, and they had actually worked together. They knew each other. Oh my gosh! In the same <laughs> hospital, and knew who each other were, and that's my biological mother. That's my biological daughter. Unreal. And so. You, you you see you know a lot of interesting things and a lot of the cases I mean we, there it takes so many cases to get one show to air um, but it because it's more and more possible as our ancestry database now has more than 15 million people tested so it, you know as more and more people get into the database the chances of you being able to find that family is greatly increased now if someone is starting with um... The DNA, I guess, is where most people start, right? Uh, the mm -hmm. DNA test kit. Well, not always. Uh, yeah. Or, or do they start uh, with the ancestry product that you have, the search product? It, it depends. Um, you know, we, you know, it, older people, I think, a lot of times tend to start with, you know, the family history side of okay. things, and then they realize that DNA can be a fantastic tool for researching your family history too. It, it has the potential to break through one of our, my mom and my thirty. 40-year-old brick walls um, because we found a match that kind of helps us prove a theory we had about the parentage of my third great-grandmother. So there, there are things that DNA can do to help you in your family history, but I really feel like getting people interested through DNA because people that might not, they might think, oh, it's too hard, I can't do this family history stuff, it's too much work. They don't realize how far the field has come and how yeah. much easier it is now. Um, but it's the DNA brings these people in, and the more people we have in, the more collaboration, uh, the more people are going to save those relics, you know, this, these documents or heirlooms that have come down through their family, like that photograph of Catherine Huggins that my cousin was kind enough to share with us. And so you, as we come together as a community and start collaborating, and I now the woman who gave me that picture, I was able to share that immigration story with her. And so it's a give and take that really brings us all together. And now since then, this woman that we've met, we met online, um, has become real part of our family. We went and had dinner with her and her husband when we were in Michigan one time. She in turn has come out and spent some time staying with my mom. So we are now, even though we're, I think I'm second cousin once removed, but we're true family now that all these branches have come back so um for the sake of our listeners could you explain the irish potato famine the, um, when it happened well, how it affected people it began in, in 1846 and the potato the, the irish especially the poor a lot of them catholic um as, there were a lot of protestants they were very poor and not doing well in ireland they were tenant farmers um, so the system just really would, did not benefit you, especially if, if you were not wealthy and if you were uh, if you were Catholic, laws were put in place to keep you not wealthy. Mm -hmm. And so 
when the potato crop failed, their main means of sustenance, because this was something that they could grow on a small plot of land that they were subletting typically from one of the larger landowners in the area. So when this failed, their main source of food was gone. There were a lot of other things that were being grown, but a lot of that was being shipped, was sold and being shipped out of the country. They set up a lot of kitchens. There was, a, there was, was you know, movement. The local communities were coming together. The poor houses were being completely overrun. They couldn't feed all these people. Uh, the church would come in and try to help. In some cases, there were, there were cases where the Protestant churches would um, set up soup kitchens, but they wanted you to convert to get your soup. So people would convert just to get fed. And so there were a lot, it, it was a very, very tough time. And year after year, it kept, the, this blight kept coming back. And so up to, eight, I think, 1849 was when the potatoes began coming back, 1850. You start to see this, you know, resurgence of them being able to get this food back. But in the meantime, millions of immigrants fled the country. Millions died in the famine. So it was just a very horrible time. And so I can imagine, you know, my, you know, my great-great-great-grandparents here probably trying to raise money to send home so that they could maybe buy some food. Um, it just, it, there really was nothing to be had. That was a huge step that they took, but one that fortunately the family survived. Right. And, it, uh, and they were strong. And when you, you think about it, you know, I'm, I'm talking in terms of a third great grandfather and a great, great grandmother, Catherine Huggins. I actually, um, we connected through um, our family trees on ancestry with a second cousin who actually gave us a picture of Catherine. So I now have, it's of course, her in a more advanced age, but I have this photograph of her. Now I can see her face and I, the relationship, the connection to her, she was my grandfather's grandmother. And when his mother died young, she, he actually lived in her household for a time. And from all accounts, you know, we've talked to this cousin who shared this photograph with us and she had a little bit more detail on the family history because my mom had kind of gotten separated from this side of the family a little bit. Her father became ill um, when she was young and she was sent to live with her mother's sister. So she didn't know a lot of these people. And in fact, that's what kind of got her interested in family history is she wanted to, she learned, she's like, I don't even know my grandparents' names on that side. So we've come together and done this research over the years and found these amazing stories that it really inspire and, you know, it, it just really keeps me going. When, when you're having a tough day and you think back and you know these stories, you, you just kind of, I can, I can get through this. What happened, to uh, your, what happened to your grandmother and her brothers when they reached New York? Well, uh, one of the daughters, Ju Judith, who came over with them, went out and she worked as a servant for a while. Right after she got here, she was still pretty young. They all just kind of pitched in and helped out around the households and, you know, made it so that the family eventually kind of moved up the stratus. And eventually, um, in fact, one of Catherine's children was uh, George George Dennis, who was my great-grandfather. He became a jeweler, and he married well. He married into a rather wealthy um, other Irish family that had been here longer and who they used to sell um, art they, when they first came in the 1820s they sold artificial flowers and eventually they made enough money that they started buying up real estate in Manhattan up and around 
you know, where it had, you know, the north side where it really wasn't populated. Mm -hmm. And this was in the 1850s. And when I started putting that into context, what they were doing was they were buying up city blocks up and around where Central Park was just about to be built. <laughs> yeah. And then they turned around and sold it for a very tidy profit. Fantastic. <laughs> and yeah, so you know, they through all these hardships and the trials, these families come together, and there was a difficult time too, though, because um, my great great grandmother on that side died of tuberculosis at very young age, so her children were put in an orphanage in 1850. Oh. So both sides of the family, you're you're seeing all these stories of hardship, but then triumph at the end, and it led us to the comfortable life that we lead. Yeah, a lot of people had to put down their lives and pay the price for our generations, didn't they? And that's they did. That always seems to be the story. Uh, mm -hmm. How tough was it for the Irish in New York, and what was happening to them? It was difficult. There was a lot of prejudice uh, against the Irish. They were poor um, papists. They were Catholic. They were papists were not looked on fondly at that time. Um, but they came and they settled in their own communities. A lot of my ancestors attended St. Paul's, which was kind of known as the Irish Church in Brooklyn. And so they settled in communities around a lot of the people that came from the same places. And those communities supported each other. Could you kind of help us out for people who are trying to find their families? Share a little of your knowledge gained about passenger lists and how to look at them and how to glean information from them. Okay, so the fir my first tip is always to create that timeline to try and narrow down that window of immigration. Ancestry has a huge collection of passenger lists online. We have the passenger list from all the major ports, and now we're starting to go back and catch some of the smaller ones. We also have border crossing records from Canada. One thing that's important to remember is that during certain periods in time, the British were trying to colonize Canada. So it, a passage to Canada was cheaper than the United States. So a lot of people made their way to Canada, maybe stayed there for a while and then crossed over. Or sometimes they just went there and then came on into the U.S. Um, and we do have incoming passenger lists to Canada, too. So you might catch them going from Ireland to Canada, and then from Canada to the U.S. and the border crossings. But there were kind of three eras of immigration, and you're going to find different types of records in these eras. Pre-1820, um, no, no laws required the captains to maintain lists. A lot of them did for their own records, uh, but there's no central repository that holds these records. After 19, or 1820, the National Archives has a lot of these lists because the U.S. government was now trying to regulate and get a little bit more control. They wanted to know who was coming in and out. Uh, what was happening was a lot of these the ship captains were bringing in imports from Europe, or bringing exports from the U.S. to Europe, but then they would come back on the trip and they had nothing coming this way. Well, there were all these immigrants that wanted to come this way, so they would, you know, kind of redo the ship configuration, put berths in the bottom. And they would start bringing immigrants in. And that about 1820, they started trying to regulate and say, okay, you know, we want to make sure you've got enough food for these people, enough provisions. And so this, this is when this requirement became, uh, you started having to list the passengers. So there are some pre-1820 passenger lists. They're kind of scattered. Some of them have not survived, but some have. Um, some of them have been published in different books. So you may be able to find 
um, a list that tells you some of the information is typically not very good. Names, sometimes you'll get an application and an age, sometimes you'll get more than that. But there are also collections like, uh, for example, New York, or I'm sorry, New England Historic Genealogical Societies put together uh, a database called The Great Migration Begins. They're actually books, but we have the database online at Ancestry. So they've taken from their vast repository and they've pulled all these researchers together to make put together biographical sketches. And among the pieces of information you'll often find in there is when and where that immigrant came in. And there's other publications too. Scott's, um, the Carolinas is one of them. But from the 1820s to around the 18, early 1890s is the, the other era. And these are the lists that are similar to the ones we saw with the Huggins. You're going to get the ship, the captain's name, port of departure, the port of arrival, um, the dates of arrival, the name of the passenger, age, their occupation, the country of origin, um, genders uh, are on there. So there's basics. And with family, again, with family structure and with knowing their friends, associates, and neighbors, you can identify your family in these records and find that type of story as well. In the late, the latest era, like from the 1890s to around 1957, which is the latest the records that we have, you're going to find a ton more information. They started changing the forms because the passenger or the responsibility for these lists was transferred over to the U.S. Office of Immigration. So they it started requiring additional information. This was, again, a period where we have these waves of immigrants coming in. You're starting to see the Italians, um, Eastern Europeans, um, a lot of these other ethnic groups that are starting to come to America. And they are, of course, people are going, oh, my gosh, we got immigrants coming. We kind of need to keep track of these people. So, But this, the, the great news for us is that changes were made to the forms. Like in 1893, they were standardized. Um, 1903, 1906, 1907, they began adding each, each time they would add more information. But you start getting marital status, last residence, and in this case, not just the country, the town of origin. You know, we get birthplaces. Um, had they been to the U.S. before? It, you know, and if so, when was that? How long were they here? When? Um, and that you'll see a lot of these immigrants, too, during this period, beginning in the 1890s, you see what was known as birds of passage. And these were a lot of times the Eastern Europeans, the um, Italian immigrants, where you see the, the husband and maybe the older sons coming over, getting seasonal work sometimes in the farms, to, but finding work. And they would go back and forth. Their families lived in their home in, the old, in Europe. And they were going back and forth, basically a you know six eight month commute, and then they go back and see their families and come back and work some more. Eventually, a lot of them brought their families here to stay. My Polish great grandfather, on my dad's side, came over probably. My grandma said about six times, but I've only been able to identify four passenger lists with him. Um, and my other great grandfather came over at least twice that I know of. So he was going back and forth recruiting miners because he worked at a mining camp in Ohio. Oh, okay. So, but, but there's all these details in there. Oh, where, if you're going to join a relative, who was that relative? And where did they live? Um, who paid for your passage and how much money do you have? Do you have enough? Because they wanted to make sure these people had enough money to get beyond the port cities to where they were going and that they were able to get themselves established and were going to become what they called likely public charge. But they asked a lot of questions. They wanted to know if they were healthy. Um, they wanted to know if they had been in prison or an almshouse or an institution for the same. Were they polygamous? 
I imagine most of the people responded no to those things <laughs> because they kind of knew I yep. want to get in here. And they're, this is probably going to not work well if I say yes. But their ethnic back, background and one of the other really great questions that they added was, who is the name and address of your closest relative in the old country? So now you've kind of gotten that oh, lead. Yeah. It's a European research now, too. So a lot of really cool things that you can learn from the passenger list from that era. But you really kind of want to know, again, from the you want to know a name, uh, an age of the, the person, even if it's estimated. And bear in mind, especially if you're looking at Irish, they were really bad with ages. <laughs> and a lot of times they didn't know. I actually have one ancestor. I got his Civil War pension file, and it actually states in here that he did not know how old he was. So, you know, when they were asked these questions, like every record, you may get a different answer, you know. <laughs> um, you want to know that, that really the key, though, is that estimated date of arrival using the timeline and the family structure, knowing the fan club. That's really, those are really big keys to success. The Hungarian, when I, I mentioned um, coming over, well, his name was Zook, so... <laughs> There were, there were actually quite a few Zooks coming over around that time because it's a very common name in Hungary. But one of the ways I was able to identify him in one of the records was he was coming over with his future brother-in-law. Oh, okay. Was there a Gad Zooks in your so, family tree? <laughs> no. <laughs> My dad used to love to tell people that. Though he, he would say, whenever they asked him how to, ask how to pronounce the name, he'd say, yep, Gad Zooks, just like that. <laughs> and actually, if, if you go to Hungary... It's pronounced Twitch. Ah. And I had a, I worked in banking for a while, and there was this really nice Hungarian janitor who would come by my desk every day, and he'd tell me, how you say your name? I'd say, Zooks. He said, no, Switch. Yeah. <laughs> and people, so he taught me. People love to correct pronunciations, whether it's a name of a town or it's whether it's a name of a name. And I, I yeah. ta I've taken it in my business to be, uh, in a way, a compliment because they care about the show and they want you to get it right. I think it's less right. of a, I think it's less of a I know it and you don't than it is people just trying to say, hey, you know this this is the yeah. way it's done. But, well, with a name like Zoops, you you get used to it being mispronounced every so while. But I've got I've while. got to run them uh, I've got to run them through Google now if it's a name. I just did a story on a Danish folk hero named his name looks like Pierre Gruten, mm -hmm. uh, but when you when you Ask Google what's the correct pronunciation for it. It'll tell you Piaguta. So I would have had it way wrong. So now I've yeah, got I to kind of check place names. names a lot of times too. Place yeah. names too is really helpful. Um, but that's another you raise another important point too, though. Is um, sometimes we find our ancestors' names spelled phonetically. Um, sometimes we'll also find that you you've heard the the myth that people's families changed their names at El that their names were changed at Ellis Island. That that is a myth. They had people there that spoke the languages that they, you know, so they could communicate with these immigrants. Mm -hmm. Um so they there was no one was going out there changing their name. Usually it was the immigrant that would change the name. And in fact with yeah. Zooks, I've seen uh naturalization records in particular that where they've changed the name from S Z U C S to S-U-I-C-H, switch. Huh, okay. It's that Hungarian pronunciation. So this is a lot of times naturalization records are a great way to find that original name that they came over with because sometimes, you know, the name that we've known as the family name all this time is not really the name of that family, um, you know, that that family used in the old country. 
-hmm. And another tip for them too is if you're if you're researching non-English speaking, remember that they probably were coming over with the ethnic version of their first name. So Google yeah. what was Polish for John or you know whatever the name happened to be, um, and or Italian for Joseph. So you want to go in there and find that ethnic version of the name and then search for that because that's the way they were probably listed. The manifests were actually created at the port of departure most of the time. There are a few exceptions, like early on, um, some like going into South Carolina, I found some that were created at the arrival. But most of the time, the agents that sold the tickets created the manifest. It came over, and then they went through and checked, you know, who was on the, on the ship and who wasn't. If there's a line through it, it means they didn't make the boat. So they, they drew the line through it. They weren't on the ship. So a lot of things you can learn. And you'll see little markings on there, too, because as people want to be naturalized, they, um, they need to meet a, re a residency requirement before the final step. They had to be here typically like five years, unless sometimes military service or things like that, you know, gave people breaks. But typically five years. So to check that, that requirement, when you're looking at a naturalization record, you're going to find that the, on the applications they listed, and this is in the, the later ones, they listed when and where they arrived. Well, then the government would go back and they would check those manifests, and sometimes they'd make notations on there that said, okay, the naturalized certificate number, something, you know, various things. There's a really cool website called Manifest Markings. It's on jewishgen.org, and it talks about all these different marks and what they mean. So even in the when you start to understand the bureaucracy of all of this, you can find additional clues that will lead you to even more records. Yeah, you talk about true family I think that's maybe the underlying reason that so many of us really have a thrill in trying to put the puzzle together, because all of us are part of a one large human family. And I think that's stressed more and more as you begin to unravel the, the mysteries of your own ancestry and ancestors and bring the stories together and start to find out a little bit more about yourself. And I'm a part of this family and I'm a part of a much larger family. A family, right. a family that's all trying to survive here on Earth and doing the best and they can. And we're a lot more diverse than we think, too. And yeah. I think that's another great thing that comes out of DNA. We find these pieces of our DNA that come from places we never would have, maybe never imagined, because yeah. some of that DNA is ancient. Oh, and that's and a, go ahead. It, 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 sometimes it, where our matches, you know, typically when we get to like fourth cousins, or you know, when we once we get past or cousin, like fifth and greater, it gets a little dicier. You don't share as much DNA. But as far as the ethnicity, we get pieces of the ethnicity that goes way back further than the paper trail, you know, because you're inheriting half of your DNA from mom and half from dad. And they inherited half from their mom and dad. And But what you're getting from the grandparents is random. You've got more of grandma's DNA than grandpa's. And so you're this wonderful mix. <laughs> and and even siblings, when you I compare my results to my sisters and ethnicity, I see different different percentages. She has different regions than I have. Like I have uh, Northwestern Europe and the UK, where she doesn't have that, but yet she has a community that I don't have. So there's a lot of um, as we bring down all these different pieces of information about our ethnic background, we realize how diverse we really are and how we really are connected. It teaches us to be more tolerant 
of other people, you know? You've done so much family research. Do you do you really find that the traits are passed along, that a family has an art, uh, a lot of artists, that that just keeps coming? Or, or is that I've just a, a rarity? In, I've seen that in some cases. I know my grandfather had a love of history. We learned that from his college yearbook. Um, and there were, you know, there are other traits that I've seen passed on. I mentioned that we had a lot of musicians in our family. That trait did not get passed on to me. <laughs> you do not want to hear me sing. <laughs> but um, I, I do believe there is something to that. I, I believe that there, you know, there's traits we inherit by nature. And then there are other traits that we pick up by the people that are surrounding us. Why do most people, first of all, you and the team that you work with at Ancestry are absolutely the tops in terms of being able to find family histories and you love working with people. What brings people to you? Do they, do they begin with the Ancestry Family Tree product and then hit a wall and then come to you? Or how, what brings them to you and how do they right, get to you? So, um, so our team technically works for... Uh, we're on the PR research team, so we work for our public relations team primarily. But we do also do educational things. Um, we're, we're starting to look at doing more. Uh, for example, you're going to be talking to Krista Cowan in another blog post. She does a lot of series of videos on our YouTube channel to help educate people and teach people tricks, teach people about the new new products on Ancestry, new enhancements to products that we have, new collections. So we do a lot of that. Um, sometimes we have an ask at Ancestry.com email. Sometimes we'll take questions from that and turn them into blog posts, answer the questions that come in. We also, um, Chris and I, also monitor our social media pages. We have member services that also go on our Facebook, on our Twitter accounts, and they, you know, when they see these mentions of Ancestry or see when someone posting a question to our page, um, if it's a research-related question, a lot of times they'll ping us and say, hey, um, could you help this person out? And we'll try and jump on and see if we can answer some questions and give them some tips. So our, that's, I think it's the greatest part of my job and why I love it so much. Every day is different. You know, we're doing different things. You know, marketing will come to us and say, oh, we have this idea for, you know, an ad, but we need some research or we need you to fact check it or we need this. Um, in other cases, we have the opportunities like the railroad ties to work with this filmmaker. And just there's all these different types of research thing, working on the TV shows. Every single day is different. Um, but a lot of the requests come in from in-house. We work with our content and product team still because we use the product so heavily every day. Yeah. Sometimes they'll come to us with an idea. If you think this is a good idea, will this work? Um, so there's just, there's a lot of ways people come to us and we just try to do the best we can to help out everybody and try and spread the word, word about how fun and engaging family history can be. Well, I've really enjoyed speaking with you today, Juliana. Uh, your pleasure to work with and our conversation I found to be very, very interesting. I know our listeners will too. All right. Well, thank you for having me, John. I always enjoy our conversations. And uh, let me know if you need a little bit of help on that brick wall. When I get a little bit of free time, maybe I can see if I can take a crack at it again for you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that very much. We'll be talking to you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.